Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. In the 19th and 20th centuries, Brooklyn was one of the biggest manufacturing centers in the world. Its factories produced everything from oil and sugar to pharmaceuticals and clocks. In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we'll dig into the global origins of factories and explore how they shaped the economy, built environment, cultural landscape, and the lives of millions of workers in Brooklyn and beyond. Well, you know, we live in a factory-made world. You know, the places we live in, the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, our cell phones, our drugs, uh, the caskets we're going to be buried in are made in factories. And yet, in our country and in many places, we take this for granted as if it's a natural fact. But in fact, the factory is a relatively recent invention. It only goes back 300 years ago. And it was once an object of great wonder, you know, uh, criticism, but celebration too, uh, because of the way it transformed the world. And so it's, I think, you know, Josh's book was, is called Behemoth. Yes. Right? And Brooklyn was certainly the home of a bunch of behemoths. Domino Sugar Refinery, Standard Oil Refinery, the Pfizer Factory, Ansonia Clock. I mean, all of these were massive sites of production. Yes. But what we're talking about here is something very different. This is a really small right. mom right. and pop outfit. I had, I always had, we always had that feeling, we had that feeling too, that we were gonna, we were not gonna be there beyond the war. Mm-hmm. Did, you have the feeling you weren't gonna be there beyond the war. Why is that? How did you know that? Well, they never had women in the Navy Yard before. We always felt and knew this was an accommodation. Uh, we needed uh, ships mm-hmm. and war materials. Mm-hmm and that women were asked to give their, you know, to come out of the home and go into the factory, but that after the war, they wouldn't need them anymore. We're thrilled to have as our guest, Joshua B. Freeman, Distinguished Professor of History at CUNY Grad Center and Queens College. Josh is the author of many books that get a lot of use in the offices of BHS historians, the most recent of which is Behemoth, a history of the factory and the making of the modern world. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Josh, this is probably the first question a lot of people may ask you. Why write a book about factories? What, What do you want readers to understand about their significance in the modern world? Well, you know, we live in a factory-made world. You know, the places we live in, the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, our cell phones, our drugs, uh, the caskets we're going to be buried in are made in factories. And yet, in our country and in many places, we take this for granted as if it's a natural fact. But in fact, the factory is a relatively recent invention. It only goes back 300 years ago. And it was once an object of great wonder, you know, uh, criticism, but celebration, too, uh, because of the way it transformed the world. So I wanted to have people who, whose lives utterly depend upon the factory understand a little bit something about its history, where it came from, and where we're going to go uh, as we evolve as a society. So you say that factories are relatively recent in the long span of history, mm. 300 years. How did, you, how did you come to sort of periodize the origins of factories? Tell us about the beginning part of the story. Well, you know, there have been large assemblages of workers episodically since ancient times. You know, build pyramids, build uh, fortifications for war. But manufacturing, making things, traditionally was done by very small groups of people, often in their own homes. And it's really only in the early 18th century that you get a new model of making things like clothes and shoes and, 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 and uh, 
other kinds of small objects, once made in domestic uh, situations, now made in what comes to be called the factory. So that's what I take as my starting point in, in early 18th century England and show how this template then spreads both spatially to other places and uh, moves forward in time t- till our modern day. And it is really interesting to think about the story beginning in England um, and then moving out to other places. Because when I think about Brooklyn, you know, a lot of the early history of the factories is what you described as that kind of pre-factory period. This is small assemblages of people. They're making things locally. They're not shipping them widely. They're used locally. And it's not in Brooklyn. It's not really until the early 19th century, even the mid 19th century, that we see the growth of factories as you're describing that's a long time for it to move over. Yeah, and in fact, even in England, you know, one of the things that fascinated me was that it, it, the, as an economic model, it took quite a while to spread. It took a good half century before the factory became anything more than a rarity. And yet, instantly, it was recognized as some hugely important new departure. So, even before it spread very much, people like Daniel Defoe were going as tourists to look at this thing because they recognized it's this new thing under the sun. What does that mean going forward? Um, and we see the same process eventually happen in America when places like Lowell, Massachusetts with textile mills become uh, objects of great interest. And, and you know, politicians and writers, uh, they go, they want to understand what's this new thing. Whether we're talking about England or whether we're talking about the United States, I'm wondering, is there is there a relationship between factories and, and the kind of labor that are used? And I'm thinking specifically of slavery. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, the first English factories were silk uh, mills. They made silk thread. But really, because that ends up being not a very important industry, it's the emergence of the cotton mm, factory, mm-hmm, you know, the mm-hmm. cotton mill that really mm-hmm. matters. And of course, this is deeply implicated with slavery uh, because very quickly most of the cotton that is used in these factories comes from uh, the Americas and, and slave grown and when the American cotton mill develops and that's the first real factory model in the United States all the cotton comes from the American South so you know uh, it, there's no disconnecting these things and by the way a lot of the product that's produced in some American uh, textile factories like in Lowell, Massachusetts, is sent back to the South because originally most of the American cloth made was pretty crude and it was used for slave clothing, among other things. So, yeah, they're inseparable. And, and by the way, lots of other kinds of unfree labor is used in factories mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, child labor, wards of the state. So, you know, lots of people who work in factories are not there because they want to be. As factories evolve from this early stage, how do they change in the 19th century? I'm thinking of Taylorism, like the whole like ideas of efficiency that emerged in the late 19th century? Well, I, th- I think these are all uh, important developments. You know, pretty quickly in England, the factory grew in size so that by the end of the 18th century, you had uh, cotton mills with 1,000 people. And by early wow. 20th, 19th century, you had 2,000 people. Um, and, and by the post-Civil War era, there are iron and steel complexes in France and Germany with 12,000 workers. Wow. That's big. In fact, there are very few factories in the United States today with 12,000 workers. So they scale up quite quickly, and they move to other industries, which in some ways are more, more complex than, than cotton making, iron and steel being an example of that, where there's not standardized products, and there are many more stages and many more skilled workers involved. And it's actually in those kinds of places where Taylorism begins to develop because, you know, one of the things that management begins to realize is that even though they may own the factory, uh, it's the workers who have the knowledge how to operate it. And they're the ones who are basically saying the pace of production. And as uh, competition grows and owners become increasingly eager to drive down costs, they turn to what's called systematic or scientific management, which is an effort to get a handle on the internal operations of the mm-hmm, big factory. Mm-hmm. And here, if you know, Frederick Winslow Taylor uh, is the sort of chief, um, you know, kind of ideologue and practitioner who develops the idea of, of not just the division of labor, because that had been around for a while, but the expropriation of, of workers' knowledge by management And instead of having workers plan and pace their own activity, sending back that knowledge, you know, in the form of detailed instructions so that workers now are stripped of the planning or pacing 
uh, process. And that makes, of course, for a much more regimented uh, and somewhere as much more oppressive kind of work life. I, I want to come back when you talked about the size of these factories. I, I'm, I'm struck by how large they were. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, how did that shape the development of residences? Like, did people live close to the factories? Were there, you know, I, I immediately think of what we think of today as these like huge campuses where people live either near or even in the case of like something like Foxconn, like in the factory uh, or in the factory complex. Like how how did the emergence of these these supersized factories in the 19th century shape the, um, the, the social life and living uh, conditions of the people who worked in, in those factories? That pattern of having workers, you know, kind of live, if not necessarily in the factory, adjacent to it, under the aegis of the factory, goes back to the very beginnings. You know, part of it was because the earliest factories, both in the United States and in Britain, were water-powered. So you have to go where the water power is, which is often a place where there is very little. So, you know, to, to create an enterprise like this, you have to build housing. You have to provide community, whether it means uh, some way to get food to workers or even uh, a church and a school. So the factory complex, the town, is, is really kind of almost part of the DNA of the factory. Now, this becomes a little less necessary when you have steam power, but it reappears with the iron and steel mills whose locations are often dictated by you know, the, the needs of the, the environment. So, so we often see uh, factory workers' lives you know, utterly in the compass of the complex. And this can take you know, more uh, benevolent forms you know, where companies provide you know, right. uh, uh, community services, or it can be extraordinarily oppressive, or it can be both at the same time. Right. Right. So how does that play out differently or does it play out differently when we go to a city like New York or like Brooklyn? Because actually, I'm also struck that people in Brooklyn lived really close to where they worked Mm -hmm. as well, not because there were company towns, but because the crappiest housing (laughs) was near industry. And that was often along the waterfront, although there were sort of experiments in places like Greenpoint with Pratt and and standard oil. How does this, you know, how does this relationship to where you work play out in, in a city setting, in a city factory setting? Well, I, th- I think you're, you you put your finger on it uh, often in part because, uh, any, you know, people wanted to be able to walk to work in an era before either the technology or the economics of, of mass transit really exist in a modern form. You know, there was a kind of uh, uh, a, a maximum distance sent by how far you could, you know, walk. And the result of this, you often had very dense working class communities of people who worked together, lived together, often you know went to the same church, socialized, drank together, uh, interrelated, and this could create powerful solidarities. You know, you think about something like the, the the sugar industry on the waterfront of Brooklyn. You know, those workers all lived nearby; they all knew each other. So that, for example, in 1886. Uh, when those workers go on strike and take on, you know, some of the most powerful industrialists in, in the world, you know, they uh, are very strong in part because their ties don't just come from inside the, the refinery and inside the factory walls. They come from the community as well. Uh, and, and we see that happen over and over again, uh, not just in the 19th century, but in the 20th century. And as you point out, maybe less in the United States, but, but elsewhere in the world with some of the most modern factories where they have dormitories and, and, and cafeterias and, and, and the workplace is also uh, the cultural center, the social center, the residential center. So, Josh, I was struck by this quote in your book. Factory jobs uh, today are deemed good jobs with little examination of what they actually entail. I guess let, let's talk a little about what they entailed. <laughs> what did you know? What was fa- working in a factory like? Let's say in New York and Brooklyn in the 19th century. I think something we take for granted today, for example, is the fact that there are like laws that determine the safety of workplaces, and this is not necessarily the case um, in the in the late 19th century or into the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a tremendous variation. Um, you know, some factory work is unskilled and extremely repetitious; others are skilled. But I think there were some commonalities, extremely long work days, you know, for unskilled workers uh, through most of the 19th century. You're talking 10, 11, 12 hour days, skilled workers, maybe 10 hours, six days a week. Uh, Dangerous, uh, unpleasant conditions, you know, Uh, pre-electric light, you know, it's dark. It's often smelly from gas, from lubricants, from people being packed together. 
dangerous working around equipment, without safety devices, without training. Uh, when you begin to get immigrant workforces with different languages, they can't even talk to each other, warn each other. So uh, there's a hugely high accent and, and, and death rates. There's often occupational disease from dust and other kinds of dangers. This is a tough life. And, you know, the American labor movement starts in part uh, uh, on the issue of work hours above all else. This is seen as a prerequisite for anything else. If you spend 10, 12 hours a day in a factory, six days a week, how could you do anything, including organize or politically express yourself? As we move into the 20th century, factory work for many people is uh, is seen as a source of, of social mobility, as a way to, if they're relatively unskilled, as a way to find dependable uh, stable employment to provide for a, a kind of economic uh, a shift. So I'm interested like how the factory functions in the imagination of the culture. How does it come to be seen as a, a good job, like a good factory job? Well, I think that does come with unionization. You know, and the, the, the uh, cultural depictions of the factory prior to the 1930s are not one of opportunity. You know, but with unionization, you're putting together the enormous productivity, the enormous efficiency that comes out of two centuries of ingenuity that the factory represents with worker power to share some of the uh, benefits that come of it, some of the surplus that comes of it. And particularly in the 25 years after World War II, uh, factory workers in the United States saw their conditions get better and their wages and benefits improve year after year after year. And it's utterly transformative. Their lives change in ways beyond they ever expected, and their children's opportunities go way beyond anything they ever expected. And I think that's where that image of the factory job is the good job. You know, I think that's the, the America that we want, want to make great again. You know, that's that image. And you know, it, it's, it's not a hugely long period. It's, you know, it, it, it's a few decades. You know, but uh, it, it's enormously powerful, and it sets a, a new standard of what working-class life should be. Yeah, it is actually. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about taking this longer historical look is what a blip that is. Yeah. Actually, what an unbelievably short period of time in the in the larger scheme of things. I'm also, you know, struck by the the like the uh, the question to the, your question about the imagination yeah. of that job. Like, I would imagine that a lot of people close their eyes and see a white male mm. um, in that in that job, which belies the fact that. Enormous numbers of women worked in factories, enormous numbers of people of color worked in factories and dealt with the kind of power relations of racial discrimination and sexism that went along with it. The factory space in its early days was a space of children and of women, you mm. know, and, and, and so the association we have of, you know, the white male with the factory is a very modern idea. And, you know, even into mid-19th century America, you know, um, when textile was still, you know, uh, the big industry, you know, it's women much more than men who work in factories. I think the image you're talking about comes with what sometimes is called the second industrial revolution of the early 20th century, you know, with car making and the growth of steel making and chemical industries and electrical equipment manufacturing. And that is heavily male and it is also, you know, heavily white, um, although not exclusively. Uh, and I think that's where our imagery comes from. But, you know, going more towards today, that's no longer the case. You know, take that famous carrier factory, which Donald Trump, you know, prided himself on saving some of the jobs. And I think a lot of people assume that if that was white guys. But actually, that was an enormously diverse workforce. You know, lots of women, lots of Hispanics, African-Americans. So, uh, it, it's really a false image if that's the way we think of the American factory today. Yeah, and I also think that there is um, like an assumption in that image that um, like everyone has the same kind of job, right? And there are, of course, hierarchies of jobs within different kinds of factories. And even just for the, some of the work that we've done in the history of Waterfront, you know, we uncovered close to 200 factories along Brooklyn's coast that employed women. Mm -hmm. And some of them were employing a thousand women. That wasn't mm -hmm. a handful of people, right? So it's sort of, there's an invisibility there, I think that um that gets lost in this second your that vision that you describe as the second sort of second um, industrial revolution sure and you know it, it, by far the largest manufacturing industry in New York over the last you know 200 years was garment and that was a heavily female industry and of course it was a lot of it was in in, in Manhattan but quite a bit of it was in Brooklyn too 
and you know uh, uh, and that's the biggest by far you know and even things like electrical equipment manufacturing there were quite a few women in that industry uh, and uh, famously during World War II a lot of male jobs became female jobs in places like the Brooklyn Navy Yard mm-hmm. so so you know this is a much more complex story I'm also struck by the, the notion that the the measure of the nation's productivity and economic vitality is closely tied to the location of factories in it, right? Like, so the idea that factories are not just a source of of economic wealth, but it's almost, I don't want to say obsession, but this very compelling idea of like, we're going to bring the factories back. Like, you know, there's this this thing that factories come to represent. Um, If you can talk a little bit about that, that idea. Well, I think that it, it, it is a powerful one that doesn't go back to the beginning of the United States, where we had very different ideas of where our national identity came from. But interestingly, by the post-Civil War period, we had come to identify our greatness you know, with our technological uh, advances, our machineries, actually. You know, and if you go to the great celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, well, they have, they have a bunch of machines, you know. Um, so I think that, that becomes a common notion in the U.S. and other places. And um, I think it's very prevalent today. You know, just a couple months ago, Donald Trump said, if you don't have steel, you don't have a country. And that's a widely shared view, not just in the United States, but in other advanced countries and throughout the developing world, that you that sovereignty, full sovereignty, you know, uh, comes from having this productive capacity uh, internally. Now, of course, this is a great subject of debate in America today. You know, Donald Trump says tariffs and so forth is a national security issue. Now, a lot of people blow him away, but a lot of people think that's right. You know, so I think... Uh, this is really hooked to the idea of the factory as an institution. You know, your greatness as a nation, your powerfulness as a nation, you know, depend upon having this productive capacity. And and yet there's the sense that we've lost that, right? Like these factories have gone, they've left. Like what what happened? What were the like sweeping changes uh, in the factory in the 20th century that that led to this sense of loss? Yeah, I mean, if I could just quote a stat from your book, um, today only 8% of Americans work in factories, down from 24% in 1960. And I would imagine in places like New York, that's an even more precipitous dip. Like, where, what Tell us a little bit about the forces that brought us about. Well, I think there are multiple forces. Some is the ever-increasing efficiency of the factory itself through automation and, and, and new systems of logistics. That means you could produce more stuff with, with fewer people. That's part one. Uh, another big piece of it is the movement of factory production to other places, primarily places with lower wages. So if you look globally, you know, we are in a heyday of manufacturing. The age of manufacturing is not behind us. We are not living in a post-industrial world. Mm. But the things that we once might have had pencils that were made in Brooklyn, you know, we are now importing. And the clothing that was once made in New York, we are now importing. And the electronics goods that were once made in New York and companies like Sperry and, and other pioneer companies, we are now importing. So I think the combination of the increased efficiency within the factory itself and the offshoring, to use the contemporary phrase of the factory, have led to this uh, drastic decline in how many Americans, or at least what percentage of the workforce uh, is factory labor. It's just interesting tying it back to your points earlier about sort of the or the origins of an American ideology mm. of this. So much of this seems to be about notions of independence and dependence in a lot of ways. So it's like this creates this dependence on other nations and sort of other forms of transportation in a way that making all making your vacuum cleaners and your pencils and your clothes um, sort of in the country, you know, seems to be this sort of representation of um, the, you know, one of the core notions of Americanism. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, I think it was in part the War of 1812, of all things, that kind of made a lot of American leaders who had been hostile to the idea of industry. They thought that that's the old world we wanted to leave. We're going to be an agrarian, Republican society. They suddenly realized, you know, you, you can't have a modern army, a, a defense, a self-sustained nation without that. And, you know, leaders all over the world, from the Soviet Union in the 1930s to China, you know, after World War II, uh, 
uh, came to the same set of thoughts. And, and, you know, obviously, again, this is a very alive political issue in the United States today. You know, there are great advantages in some ways of, of offshoring. After all, we buy things at ridiculously low prices, absurdly low prices. You know, what we pay for things that require huge amounts of human labor, you know, uh, I guess you could call that an advantage, but the disadvantage is uh, certainly our fate is not in our own hands anymore. Yeah. And of course, the lab- what that means for the labor in these places, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Look, the, the, the success of the Walmarts and the Apples, you know, uh, depends upon uh, exploitation elsewhere. I mean, what led me to re- start this book project was the stories in 2010 of workers in the factories that were assembling iPads and iPhones jumping off the roof to commit suicide because they were so miserable. And the contrast between the sleek, futuristic, you know, super convenient devices we stick in our, our pocket and the actual lived lives of the people making them thought, gee, we need to pay more attention. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. In our first segment, Josh Freeman gave us a really good understanding of what a factory was in terms of scale and size and for this segment, I think I want us to think about or I have a question about like what makes a factory a factory or is a factory the only thing we think of when we think of a site of manufacturing? And to help us do that, Julie, you found a really interesting a story found in our archives that that helps us think through this question about manufacturing and factory and what is a factory and is is can you have a factory that's super small? Can you you know, so Tell us what we are looking at. We have a really wonderful collection called the Well-Made Glove Records. Um, It's ARC 224. We'll link to the finding aid in our show notes. Um, But this basically chronicles the business of the Lebman family who ran a site of production and consumption. Mm, Basically, mm -hmm. they were creating kid gloves in in mid-century Park Slope. Um, They were making them on site and they were also selling them out of that area. And they also lived there as well. And so it's, I think, you know, Josh's book is called Behemoth. Yes. Right? And Brooklyn was certainly the home of a bunch of behemoths. Domino Sugar Refinery, Standard Oil Refinery, the Pfizer Factory, Ansonia Clock. I mean, all of these were massive sites of production, right? Um, And they tended to be located... In the same area or clustered around. Well, they were certain they the, were often on the yeah, waterfront. Yes, yes. Uh, they, they, this was a prime source of transportation. They were able to ship things mm-hmm, out very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a place of environmental dumping, yes, right, for yes. these kind of high waste, um, uh, high waste industries like a Standard Oil, mm-hmm. for example, right. But what we're talking about here is something very different, right? And it really has prompted a lot of questions for Sahir and me about what you know is a factory just any site of manufacture what are the questions about how it's it's scope it's reach in the world um how big does something have to be to be a factory because this is a really small mom and pop outfit right yeah and and you know and and again tying into that question of the role of other kinds of if if we say this is not a factory then we we need to make sure we make space in our imagination for other kinds of scaled manufacturing and think about where that fits into this conversation. Yeah, I mean, so as Josh was describing, the, both the way he periodized the sort of the history of factories and the kind of the, the, the changing nature of scale of mm-hmm. factories, I was struck by the fact that in his vision, um, factories are actually a, a distinctly modern venture. Yeah. And what I'm struck by about this family's story is that there are actually a lot of holdovers from kind of a pre-modern era mm-hmm. or a like pre-industrial mm-hmm. revolution era. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Lebman family are Polish immigrants. It is a family business. And one of the interesting things about Louis Lebman is that he, um, wh- when he was young, he went to a place called Gloversville. And he basically engaged in a very intensive apprenticeship. Wow. 
So he basically learned the fine art of kid glove making. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as a historian, often when you think about the history of apprenticeship, you think late 19th, yeah. early 20th <laughs> century. Right. You think about its decline right. in the face of the very factories right. that Josh described to us. But clearly there's a holdover here in these skilled, in these sort of skilled labors, right? And so one question, and, and also the fact that he lived where in his place of production, right? right? right. These are kind of pre-modern yeah. ideas, which yeah. is, I think, a fascinating thing to be exploring in mid-20th century. And, you know, and I think thinking about this is, is making me think of this center of manufacturing as a kind of precursor to what we consider now the artisanal you know, factories. Because right. there, there is a kind of personal touch that has a prime value for certain kinds of products, right? Like... There are things that are mass produced that you're like, yeah, this is fine. We, you want a kind of consistency in the production that makes sense why people want it. In the case of leather goods, though, there there is a sense that like a hand stitched or, you know, you know, custom signed. Yeah, that yeah, there is absolutely. there is a there's a, a desire for that kind of manufacturing. So let's dive into to the story a little bit more. Where was this uh, this site of production? This site of production. Where <laughs> you was see, the site I'm like struggling. I don't want to say factory because I don't know. But where was the site of production located? So it was in South Park Slope. Um, it was at 487th Avenue. Um, the papers that we have um, range from 1941 to 1960. So this is sort of the 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 heart of mid century mm-hmm. Brooklyn. And today, we I think we associate Park Slope, all parts of Park Slope, North, right. Middle, <laughs> and South, <laughs> with gentrification, right. with high end living. Right. You know, it's a very it's a coveted neighborhood yes. in Brooklyn. Yes. But it's always historically been very divided. Yeah. And so North Slope is a place of beautiful mansions. Right. Um, you know, the stretch of um, Prospect Park West right. was like the Gold yeah. Coast, the I mean, Fifth Avenue. Yeah, yeah, and right? this is not dissimilar to Central Park in Manhattan. Exactly. The closer you live to the park, the more tony the neighborhood. Exactly. But as you start to get below Ninth Avenue, um, in the you know in the period really before the 1980s, the neighborhood takes on a very different feel. Mm-hmm. The housing stock becomes much more modest in mm-hmm. size and scale, mm-hmm. and it's largely a working class neighborhood, um, especially as you get more towards the Greenwood Cemetery and and then you kind of go down the the slope yeah, if yeah. you will to go on us yeah. which is obviously the opposite yeah, neighborhood exactly. than the gold the gold coast <laughs> yeah, of yeah, Brooklyn yeah. so we're talking about what's what at the time was certainly a respectable neighborhood but also a very mixed neighborhood an appropriate place I think for an immigrant family to settle um, but also to have this kind of mixed use um, building mm-hmm. a place where you both lived and worked and sold things and made things yeah yeah so um, you've pulled a few uh, documents for us to look at, um, three things that we're, we're looking at. One is a family photograph. And why I think this is important is there is this, I think you may have said mom and pop, but there is this sense of the whole family's involved in this. And unless people think that this is so inimical to the idea of a factory, I mean, I think Josh was very clear that um, for for a good portion of the factory's history, the primary laborers were actually women and children. So this photograph is what... Is the, the heart of the business, yeah, if you will. Yeah. And I'm also, you know, one thing I would love for a researcher to do more work on is to see if we can find out the nature of the other workers that were employed yeah, by the Lebman family. Yeah. Um, who were the people who were doing this work? Did Lebman train them? Um, did they go, Were they required to go on apprenticeships? Did he try to kind of tailorize or regularize the process of glove making? He made gloves for local people, but he also made gloves on, on mass and sold them to stores as mm-hmm. well right mm-hmm. so clearly he would have had a staff and if we look at you know the this just it's not a huge collection but there's a lot of stuff here there's yeah. receipt books there are invoices from you know leather manufacturers there are business cards there's telephone directories there's issues of periodicals um, there's maintenance contracts tax returns so you could glean an enormous amount yeah. of information about yeah. the inner workings of a small company and how they managed to stay afloat in the 20th century. So let's talk about one of the documents that is part of of that collection. We are looking at an invoice from the United States Roskins Tanners, Inc. It's dated November 23rd, 1951. It is an invoice of goods sold to well-made gloves. And these are skins, 
right? Um, so um, it looks like brown cape, um, cork pigskin pieces, and cork pigskins. And so, okay, there's a couple of things that I think are really interesting yes. about this. First of all, you get a sense of like how much they're buying at a time, which is not yes. that much, yes. right? So if we're thinking about like a glove factory that employs uh, you know, a thousand people right. there, if they're even buying, um, you know, these kinds of skins, if they're not making them themselves or right. there isn't a kind of vertical right. integration, they're probably buying tens of thousands of feet here. We have, um, you know, they bought um, 53 feet of brown cape. They bought 16 feet of the pigskin pieces mm-hmm. and um, 14 and a half feet of the cork yeah. pigskins. I mean, this is small scale stuff, yeah. you know? yeah. And and we also get a sense of what their input and their sort of their output is in terms of money, right? So if we look at all of these kinds of invoices, because there are tons of invoices yeah. like this in the collection, we can really get us and along with their sort of receipt books and stuff, we can really get a sense of what their costs of production actually are, which is something I think it is much more difficult to glean from like the behemoths um, right. along the Brooklyn right. waterfront, right? So one of the things that strikes me about this is that they're buying the skins from a tanner. So the Lebman family, the well-made glove manufacturers, are they're not a soup to nuts operation, right? right? Like they are the the finishing. Um, they are assembling based on materials that they're buying, and there's nothing. There's nothing fraudulent about that right like there's nothing that says that they can't be again the overriding question for for me and i think for us in this segment is like what makes a factory a factory and there's nothing that disqualifies them from factory status because they're using um raw materials that are uh, developed somewhere else right but it is worth noting because i think you know we talked in a previous segment about the textile mills and where cotton cloth was manufactured from the raw cotton there is this belief i think and and, and i think in terms of our imagination of what happens at a factory is that something is made out of nothing right and it's all happening under one roof and i think this is prompting me to question that assumption well i think this is like clearly a product of globalization right so the cotton factories are a great example. If um, you know, if we have slave labor mm-hmm. picking cotton mm-hmm. in the South, and then those cotton, um, those you know that co- that raw cotton is being sent to Lowell mm-hmm. to make it into cloth, then that cotton cloth is going to garment manufacturers yeah. to be made into clothing, yeah. right? Yeah. So we're already in the early 19th century, even before the Civil War hits, talking about expansions in transportation technology that make this kind of multi-tier um, multi-tier production possible. So let's look at the second uh, document that you have here, which is which raises another set of questions, right? And this is a telephone directory circa 1940s. It looks like a listing of shops that maybe carry um, the products of well-made gloves. What's striking to us is that it's handwritten it's so charming it is charming of my great-grandmother and And, you know the handwriting is different like there's not a consistent hand so it's possible that different people made these different entries but again this raises the question of the personal touch that is present in this particular operation and it reminds us also that this is a site of sales, yeah. not just a site of production, right? And that I think as you're exact you're exactly right. There's kind of a bespoke nature to the way that these sales um are done. So they are keeping in personal touch with all of these shops. By the way, they're largely local. Yeah. I think that's really key. Yeah. So a number of Brooklyn ones. Uh, so we have uh, something in Mur- a couple in Murray Hill. Right. And then a couple of places Actually, Longacre, you know, that could be, no, that's New York. These are all within greater New York City, you know? So we're not talking about a glove company with this sort of massive national reach. This is, again, a bespoke business that is dealing quite locally on very personal terms.
On this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to Ida Pollock's oral history. Ida Pollock grew up in the Bronx in a Jewish American family. Her dad was very active in um, in labor movements and in um, a communist party fraternal organization. She attended Brooklyn College, left to begin working first for a, a greeting card factory, then for Gimbel's department store, and eventually she ended up during World War II as a welder at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. A little bit of historical context, I think, is important to understand Ida and her entrance into this particular workforce. Um, this is during World War II, and during World War II, as, as her husband left and many men left for the service, creating a huge, very quick uh, need for labor. And this created opportunities for women to enter into jobs traditionally held by men. Part of the recruiting played upon their sense of, of patriotism and loyalty to the cause and to the country. And, and there were icons created to market these opportunities. I think a lot of people are familiar with the Rosie the Riveter figure. And as Julie earlier to me pointed out, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, they were called yeah, there wasn't so much riveting going on right. at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, so it was it was a lot of welding. So a we've got our we've, today we're going to hear from a Wendy the a welder. Wendy the welder. So it's important to give that context, and for many of these women, many of them were were new to the workforce, but some of them were not. It's really, I think, important to point out that before World War II, no women worked the Navy yeah. Yard. Yeah. And at the end of World War II, about 5,000 women did. It's just an, a really remarkable thing. And doing jobs that you don't normally associate um, with women. Um, these were sort of uh, very physical jobs, sometimes dangerous jobs, um, and required significant skill. This oral history collection is one of our more popular ones. It's the Brooklyn Navy Yard Oral History Project. It, it is comprised of over 50 interviews of men and women who worked in or around the Brooklyn Navy Yard during World War II. So we are going to listen to this first excerpt where Ida talks about the working conditions and the challenges of working at the Navy Yard. Yeah, I got very comfortable with heights. After an initial terror. Oh yeah, it took, took a little while. And you really had to get over it because in the building of the ship every day, and Lucy was more, oh, Lucy never went out on the ship. I don't know why. <clears throat> I think only the women who welded went out on the ship. But every day, as the ship, uh, as the, uh, you know, the building went on, there were new stagings set up to accommodate new levels of work. And those stagings, uh, you had to get used to heights to be able to walk along them. It's like guys on high, you know, high construction things. So we got used to that. Else well, some of the metals we dealt with were very hazardous to our health, and we had problems with that. We had to insist on blowers. Blowers were these metal tubings attached to a suction pump to pull away the smoke as it was generated so that you didn't breathe it in because uh, there's some metal that is covered with, uh, while it's awaiting, while it's stored and awaiting use, it's covered with galvanized material, which is like uh, zinc. And when that gets hot from welding, it's toxic. It can make you, make you sick. So you had to have your blower close to pull it away as you then some parts of the ship required stainless steel. Mm -hmm. And stainless steel also, if you welded stainless steel for too long, you could get sick to your mm -hmm. stomach. So there were some things that uh, presented problems. And then parts of the ship, some parts of the ship were inaccessible and, and difficult. So first of all, I mean, this is just hard work. Clearly, yes. this yes. is hard work. This is um, actually sounds like an incredibly stressful work environment because they're, you're sort of dealing with constant and different modes of mm -hmm. danger at all the time. And it also sounds like a really physical work environment, yeah. right? 
they have to put themselves sort of on the line. They're mm-hmm. doing skilled work in not ideal conditions. They're managing their um, their own sort of exposure to toxic, um, you know, fumes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a this is a lot for a, a person to handle, especially in like the first kind of high industry job of their life. Yeah. The other thing that struck me is when she said we had to insist on blowers. Yes. So yes. the you know she describes what those blowers are to help clean the air around yeah. them. But the fact that she uses the word insist says something about both the folks that she was coming up against, management, that maybe was not so, you know, needed to be pushed more than usual. And the fact that she says insist suggests that that she, along with a lot of her coworkers, probably also women, either had to or, or came with this idea like we are going to have to speak up, we're going to have to speak out, we're going to have to push people. Otherwise, we're going to be in these these very harmful conditions. There is such an interesting and specific power relation to this moment when women are working at the Navy Yard, because on the one hand, they're women. And as we can see from a lot of documentation of this period, there's enormous sexism that they faced in all, not just at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, but at Navy Yards across the country, right? But on the other hand, there's a work shortage, <laughs> They're really needed. They're mm-hmm. working incredible mm-hmm. hours, in fact, because their their work is so needed to sort of fuel the war effort. So it's this very unique situation where they're both still continu- con- contending with the the gendered power relations that just are ubiquitous at the time but they also have a a certain amount of leverage that they're able to to use both in terms of work conditions and also in terms of pay despite these very stressful conditions um ida really seems to love welding and so let's hear about you know her feelings when the job came to an end when the war finally ended in 1945 I had, I always had, we always had that feeling, and we had that feeling too, that we were gonna, we were not gonna be there beyond the war. Mm-hmm. Did you have the feeling you weren't gonna be there beyond the war? Why is that? How did you know that? Well, they never had women in the Navy Yard before. We always felt and knew this was an accommodation because uh, they needed uh, ships mm-hmm. and war materials. Mm-hmm and that women were asked to give their, you know, to come out of the home and go into the factory, but that after the war, they wouldn't need them anymore. How did you feel about that? You, you said it was an accommodation for their purposes. I mean, I don't know if at the time that we were working there, it bothered us, me too much. It bothered me when it was over, because by that time I really liked welding. I wanted to stay. <laughs> There's a nice sense of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And I would have liked to have done welding for the rest of my life, working life. It wasn't. And no, no welding off a ship would be as rigorous as on a ship. Mm-hmm. Because you can't turn a ship over. You know. It, if you worked like if you worked in a in a boiler shop, the thing would be right there. Boiler would be right there in front of you. Mm-hmm. So did you try to? You were laid off in the navy yard. What yeah. happened? We were all. Um, what do they call it? Given our notices, the war was over, and that was the end of our 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 work. We would just let go. Yeah. And were you surprised? No. We sort of all, we all really expected it. Mm-hmm. Were you disappointed? Yeah, I would have liked to have stayed. From there, I went, it was a, a while before the end of the war until the men came home, too. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a period in between, and I took a job in a radio factory where I did soldering. It was a miserable place. When Ida is talking about women being turned away, there is this this notion of a protected class of women from these harsh kind of working conditions. And so it isn't, you know, it isn't marketed to these women as like, you know, we're 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 now going to deprive you of your job. 
It is. We thank you so much for coming out of the home and working where so hard. Where you'd rather be. Where right. you'd rather yeah. be. And um, now you have the privilege to return back home. Now, for many of the women of color That's right. and, and new immigrants, um, that was not an option. That's right. Um, and for many of the women who were being kind of corralled back into the home, they actually wanted to stay. That's right. Right. That's right. And Ida uh, talks about, you know, wanting to stay. So what what happened with Ida? Yeah, I mean, I just thought this idea that when Ida said I, I could have done welding for the rest of my life, I just like as a as a woman who was of a different generation than that, it really gutted me. Actually, it's incredibly sad. Like when you like she found her calling and she couldn't do it. And so what happens to Ida? Well, you know, she basically is laid off in 1945. She goes to work at the radio factory soldering. She didn't do that for long. And eventually her husband came home from the war. One of the reasons that she worked during this period is because her husband was overseas like like a lot mm-hmm, of women actually mm-hmm. they moved to Troy New York and basically she looks for welding jobs and she's unable to find wow. them um, so eventually they have children and then they move back to New York after a while where she actually becomes really active in political organization but I just think this idea that she was never able to to chase her dream and then even when this was taken like close to the end of her life this oral history was taken close to the end of her life she still could look back and say that was what I wanted to do with my life and with this episode of Flatbush in Maine we've made Brooklyn history thanks to our guest Joshua Freeman you can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.